There was obviously a significant worry that I was going to lose not only my wife, but lose the second child. You know, that was something I've been told could happen. Uh, if they hadn't done that emergency section, the likelihood would have both would have gone. So you're really having to confront some really big, big issues. And I suppose it's at times like that where faith becomes very real. You know, I'd be the first to admit that for large parts of my life, and maybe it's the same in a lot of people, although your faith is genuine, you kind of mosey along and things just tick over. But when crisis like this happened, suddenly the faith becomes real and you're having to depend on God and, and everything else. It puts everything else into perspective. to be with Sarah and Leonard Curry for once it's in person which is very nice <laughs> and uh, we look forward to hearing your testimony I'm going to start with you Leonard mm -hmm. what was your home life like and what influence if any did Christianity play my home life was very normal in a sense my mum and dad were both Christians my brother was four years younger than me there was two of us and from the earliest of ages, we were taken to Sunday school and to church services. That was the routine. Mum and Dad went to the mall. We, we went along as well, whether we liked it or not. And very happy home. But Christianity was clearly there. And we were very much aware of that. And then as I grew up, you started to pay a bit more attention in church services, you would then start to understand the message that was being presented. Probably from about age eight, nine, I was conscious of you know, the message of the Bible and the message of salvation and how it impacted on me. Didn't do anything about it for a number of years. It was 11 before I took Christianity seriously and became a Christian. And Sarah, what about yourself? Yeah, so I was brought up in a Christian home as well. Really a loving home, quite a carefree life. We lived in the countryside, could roam the fields and down the burns and all the rest of it. And I was actually became a Christian at quite a young age. And probably my faith wasn't really real to me until I was older. Because then you live in the reality of your faith. But I did have a childlike faith and I had put a trust in God at a very young age. I say I was influenced by friends around about me, family, and I say I, there was a lot of love and care in my family. We were a very real family, you know, there was problems and struggles, but we were all there for each other. But no, a lot to be thankful for. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about growing up, teenage years, career, education, and how did that then come out to you two meeting? When I was growing up into teenage years, knew of Sarah, but didn't really know her at that stage. Uh, and then Decided to go off to university, so I had always an interest in mathematics, which is a kind of strange thing, really. But I loved it. I went to Edinburgh to do maths, 
And then when I qualified, I went into work in finance. I enjoyed that. Then we went to a Bible class a few years after that. And that was really where we met, say, there was quite a large <laughs> number of young folk. And we did great Bible studies. And we also did some social events as well in the summertime. And it was really, really good. I have very happy memories of those Bible classes. And yeah, that's where we met, say. So we met at Bible class. There's a few years of difference between us, so I actually started going out with Elijah when I was 17. Yeah. So I had been to college, I did dental nursing to start with, been to college and then went on to do oral health promotion as well. But we'd met there, he was a nice guy, just, you know, met him and thought he was always really nice. I was a bit surprised when he asked me out, I wasn't quite expecting that. We've been together ever since, obviously, so yeah, stories to tell, yeah. <laughs> And it's lovely that you don't laugh when you say yeah. he's a nice guy, so yeah. she doesn't believe you're aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't actually ask you where home was. I've always been in Fife. Okay. So we're here just now. In fact, in this town, I was born, born in St Andrews, because that's where the maternity hospital was, but grew up in, in Glenothis. And when we married, we moved to a house in Glenothis and... You know, we changed house about 14 years ago, so we've all, I've always been in, in this town in Fife. Whereas I'm from Falkirk, I'm from through the west of Scotland, different from Fife. <laughs> People are different as well. Maybe we shouldn't have maybe got that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that would be serious. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, so I moved through to Fife when I got married and I've been there here ever since. So we're nearly 30 years married, actually. I was a young bride, <laughs> I have to say, yeah. This is now home for me, which I never thought I'd ever see, but it's home for me now. After that Years. Yeah, it took me a while, but it's home now. <laughs> my mum and dad, none of them came from Fife. My dad was from Ayrshire, my mum was from Lanarkshire. So we probably acquired quite a lot of that influence as well. But even yet, my dad was in Ayrshire until he was about 20. He's now 85, and he still talks about Ayrshire as if it's home. So, <laughs> so maybe we'll... Uh, yeah. Maybe we'll as, see as always, just on his holidays here. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you'd be married in 1993. Mm-hmm. Life is bliss. Everything, yes. everything Absolutely. smooth. Yes, Absolutely. yes. Um, it starts out that way. I suppose for every married couple, that's how it starts. And rightly so, not a care in the world. And I suppose for a lot of Christians, and we were no different. That was it. There had been some issues in, in, in our lives, but relatively speaking, things are fairly stable. And you get, you get married and... It's the happily ever after. It's happily ever after. <laughs> yeah. But as we would now say to young other younger people growing up, it's not too long before issues hit. And within uh, your marriage and then you have a family and then th- there's just other issues come in. We've been like many couples and we've just had to, had to deal with them, yeah. So in 1998, you'd become parents? Yeah, that was our first child, Hannah, was born in 1998, so that was a shock to her system. <laughs> she was a lovely soul, and I had quite a difficult pregnancy with her, a difficult birth, and probably was quite traumatised after it, so at that point, really didn't want any more children. <laughs> but that's another story, obviously. <laughs> We're going to come on yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the first few years that Hannah is here, again, just acclimatising the parenthood, getting used to the new dynamic of, of being parents... Yeah. And then in 2002, you would fall pregnant again. Yeah. And this time things would be a little bit more complicated again. Yeah. So from very early in the pregnancy, they were worried there was going to be a problem and it was going to be an early birth. I'd been quite unwell when I had Hannah with preeclampsia and there were signs from very early on that the same thing was going to happen again. 
So it was monitored all the way through the pregnancy to the point that they actually thought there was some strange cancer that was going on that they weren't managing to diagnose because of the levels in my body. And we literally had got the um, answer to say that it wasn't cancer and that would have been on the Friday. And then on the Monday, I was taking a hospital to have Rebecca and this was 15 weeks early. She was 25 weeks into the pregnancy. So it was a bit of a dramatic time from there on, yeah. Yeah. And what complications came with that early pregnancy? For me personally, yeah. So I was really unwell and I was in intensive care. So at that point, all my organs were starting to shut down and they didn't think that the pregnancy was viable any longer and they didn't think I could survive. For me, it was probably quite difficult, probably more difficult for people looking on. But amazingly, there was a doctor who was involved who decided to try something that hadn't been tried before and things became a bit stable for about two weeks. So I was actually taken at 23 weeks and for two weeks they managed to stabilise me until I had an emergency section with Rebecca. Yeah. Perhaps at this point, then you can explain what it's like to Become. look on. No doubt feeling rather helpless. It, it was feeling helpless. I mean, when, Han, when Hannah came, she'd been a little bit early. So there was some minor complications with Hannah, but she soon picked up and so on. But this was on a different scale altogether. It just felt really, really helpless. Um, there was obviously a significant worry that I was going to lose not only my wife, but lose the second child. You know, that was something I've been told could happen. Uh, if they hadn't done that emergency section, the likelihood of both would have gone. So you're really having to confront some really big, big issues. And I suppose it's at times like that where faith becomes very real. You know, I'd be the first to admit that for large parts of my life, and maybe it's the same in a lot of people, although your faith is genuine, you kind of mosey along and things just tick over. But when crisis like this happened, suddenly the faith becomes real and you're having to depend on God and, and everything else, it puts everything else into perspective. Yeah. And how do you react in your your own personal walk and your relationship with the Lord? How does that change as you go through difficulties? Does it throw you towards the Lord? Does it cause you to, to be kind of a, a bit angry or distant? How did you... How did you react in your normal, you know, compared to your normal walk beforehand? I would say it would throw me more towards the Lord. Okay. And at that point, I would have to feel that I have to fully rely on him, probably strengthen my faith quite a lot in these moments. There are moments I would ask why, why has this happened? But then I'm quite a positive person, so I always try, try to see the best of everything. And I think, well, why not? Well, you know, why did it happen, but why not? Um, and I think in the early days, I did ask a few times, you know, why is this happening to us? Why, why? But I kept thinking, well, if it wasn't me, it'd be somebody else. Why not? But no, I think for me, that really strengthened my faith and I wouldn't have got through it without the Lord. Um, the Lord would really help me get through it. I found it very difficult during that time to do Bible study, if I'm being very honest. Um, I used to help out a lot in, in you know, assemblies and churches, and did a lot of Bible teaching and so on, did a lot of preparing for that. Found that almost impossible for a quite long period of time, but found that actually the Lord was obviously fully aware of it more than I was, um, and it then became the case that you know, small parts of the Bible became very precious. You know, verses became very precious. I couldn't 
study large parts of it. You know, life is just so hectic, 24-7. We were involved with hospital visits, and that went on for over a year. But Lord undertook, and looking back on it, we saw his help hugely during that period of time. Do you find that it's normally when you look back, you can see the Lord's hand that you maybe don't see at the time? So we had a lot of incidents, even that was obviously quite traumatic, but lots of incidents that happened after, which we'll probably come to later on. And it was amazing just to see the Lord's Lord's hand in it. And sometimes the answer, why? You you know, you you knew why at the time you didn't. And we don't always know why. And I I believe that sometimes we will never know why here, that the Lord knows why. And it won't be an eternity, we will know. But there was a lot of answers and, and you could see the reasons for why things happened. Do certain verses take on a preciousness they didn't yeah. have before? So I've got lots of favourite verses, so many that you, you'd be here all night listening to them. But during this time, I actually kept a diary. And in this diary, I used to write down just a verse that the Lord would have given me, or a poem, or a hymn. And it wasn't, as Lord was saying as well, not studying big chunks of the Bible, but it was just what the Lord comforted me with. And when I look back on that, it's amazing the moments that the Lord used and the verses he used that were so appropriate. I mean, there's so many verses, I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, be still and know that I am God is one of my favourite verses just the calmness that God brings in situations where there's turmoil so we'll do a follow up podcast where we just read your diary day by day and go <laughs> yeah. through it you can do that you know right? <laughs> it's like I actually went and got the diary so that, but not, I should really bring it to see if we can get some verses one of the verses that I found very helpful and I have done ever since really a well known verse First Peter chapter 5 verse 7 about that time when I was just looking at a verse at a time almost that I realise that the two words for care in that verse are different. You're casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. One's anxious care. That's the care that we had. That's the care that many Christians have. But you don't cast your anxious care on the Lord and get anxious cares back. It's his loving, affectionate care that came back. I remember reading an account by F.B. Mayer, a well-known Christian writer, and he said, and I thought it was quite amazing, what an exchange... We give to God our anxious care, and in return, he gives us his loving, affectionate care. And I think we found that out. So that verse became very precious because we had lots of anxious care, and we were able to cast it on the Lord, so we were very dependent on the Lord, acutely aware that we didn't have the strength at all. And yet, it's amazing that we were showered with his loving, affectionate care, and we felt that and knew that, and that really sort of sustained us through quite a long, extended, difficult period. Uh, at the time, it didn't even feel particularly difficult. It was traumatic. But it was only when we looked back, we wondered how we actually got through it at all. But clearly, we recognised that a lot of bonus uh, along through all those difficulties. Um, and there seemed to be so many of them. But as each new challenge was faced each new medical drama unfolded and there was lots of them as well the Lord was there and the Lord was there to help another favourite verse (laughs) so another favourite verse of mine is um, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings will you find refuge and for me that's just the, 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 the fact that you know that God's looking after you and caring for you and that was one of probably the verse at the very start of my journey when I was ill 
that the Lord gave to me and it was with me through that whole time and it's now another one of my favourite verses <laughs> you do know at the end of the podcast I ask for favourite verses so you know don't use them all up now oh that's right yeah. <laughs> I know they're plenty but don't, don't use them all me, don't ask me the references it's like open with the phone don't ask me to quote them perfectly either <laughs> we'll check them off yeah. make sure you've said <laughs> them right as a navy <laughs> So Rebecca was born in the November yeah. when it came in 2002, but by December 2002, Rebecca would need a heart operation. So perhaps you could go into what the complexities were for Rebecca and some of the processes that needed to take place afterwards. So when Rebecca was born, she was 15 weeks early and she was only £1.6. We really didn't think she would survive and we weren't given a lot of hope that she would survive by the medics. The Lord obviously undertook and people were praying for her and then she was fighting for her life. But she had a, a hole in her heart, which is quite common when babies are born, but normally it closes. And unfortunately, they tried everything, they tried medication, they tried everything and they decided that they were going to have to do it surgically. So at that point, we were going to have to transfer her from our local hospital to York Hill Children's Hospital, as it was in the time in Glasgow, um, which was quite a difficult thing especially for Leonard because he didn't really want her to go because she was so fragile so she was taken through the it was just before Christmas in fact I remember the day very clearly because it was Hannah's Christmas party at nursery and she wanted to make sure that I would be there and I told her that I would definitely be there and all of a sudden I realised that how was I going to be able to be in two places at once so amazingly, I managed to get Hannah dressed for the party and send her away to the party. And then my sister came and picked me up and took me through to Glasgow to find Rebecca in the hospital. And then the surgery was done the next day. But we found out afterwards that the journey through had been really quite traumatic and they'd had to stop at the side of the motorway and resuscitate her because they thought she was, wasn't going to make it. So when we arrived at the hospital, we found her in quite a fragile state. And then at that point, they must have delayed the surgery for a few days. It wasn't maybe the next day. Delayed it for a few days. And then they did it. And then very quickly, she was transferred back through to Fife again. But again, tiny baby, about the size of your hand. My first recollection I've ever seen Rebecca was her hand on my thumbnail. And that was her full hand was on my thumbnail. So you're talking about a tiny, tiny baby. Yeah, I think the scale of it was just difficult to comprehend. As little it was... The length from the tip of your finger to the heel of your hand, her head just looked the size of a tomato. You know, that, that you're trying to imagine it connection with something that uh, you could equate it to. I think one of the hardest things, particularly for Sarah uh, as a mum, Sarah's first hold of Rebecca was at eight weeks. Now that's a long, long time. Mm. She's an incubator, you could put your hand in and just stroke her tiny little hand, but the first time she was taken out of incubator was eight weeks, so. Difficult for me as a dad, but I think particularly difficult for Sarah as a mum. And were you confident at that point that Rebecca would survive? No. So we had... The first time I saw Rebecca, I didn't actually think she was going to survive. So I'd been so unwell that I didn't get to see her the day she was born. I had to wait for a few days, probably. So when they took me up to intensive care to see her, I actually thought they just kept her alive so I could see her. That's what I thought had happened. And then, obviously, as days went past, eventually realised that maybe there was a chance she could survive. But unfortunately, so many times she had to be resuscitated, you know, CPR on her, things like that. And so many times we were told, sorry, she's not going to make it. So every day we were living with praying, really, that she would survive, but not knowing if she would. It probably wasn't until about a year that we thought that, you know, maybe there was 
the possibility, um, and we'll maybe come on and talk about there was an, an event happened after that, and that was probably the hardest because by that time our expectations had changed. We were looking forward to her getting better, and then she took really bad. But but even in that first spell, uh, I remember that she took a problem uh, that's quite common, I think, in premature babies, where the organs just kind of shut, start to shut down. One of the symptoms of that is that she's not able to, to pass anything at all, which meant that even though she was tiny, she retained fluid and just became almost grotesque. It was so sad to see it. And we actually got called by one of the doctors. Um, he had his own religion and he was very, very devout. Um, quite often he would be leaving the ward and he would go away and pray. So he called us in and he asked us if we were religious. I said, well, I suppose in that terms, well, yeah, we are. And he asked if we would want Rebecca to be baptised. Because he says, we don't expect her to see the night out. Unless things change, she won't survive the night. Um, we really appreciated that gesture. I remember saying to him, Rebecca's life is very fragile. And I'll never forget his response. He just looked across the desk and said to me, all of her lives are very fragile. And I said, you're absolutely right. Not all of her lives are fragile. But at that point, Rebecca's was really fragile. And at some point during the night, she was able to get rid of the fluid and, and survive. But that was another point where we thought we'd lose her. In April 2003, Rebecca needed tracheotomy. So have I said that right? So tracheotomy is American term, so tracheostomy is the British term. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, I've learned something tonight. Right. Yeah. But how did the need come about? So she'd been on a ventilator and since she was born, and usually premature babies, they would tell you to aim for the birth date, and by that time you'd hopefully get home and the baby would be off the ventilator. But it became very apparent that she couldn't breathe without the ventilator. So the consultant called us in and said, look, we really think that we have to perform a tracheostomy to help with her breathing, um, which we weren't really too sure about to start with, but then we realised it was something that had to be done. So the day that she was supposed to go through to Edinburgh to the Sick Children's Hospital in Edinburgh to get it performed, I had gone into the hospital to see her. And as I was cuddling her, just, you know, cradling away, giving her milk and everything, I looked down and very calmly I turned to the nurse and said, I don't think she's breathing. So the nurse quickly grabbed her off me and said, no, she's not breathing. All the alarms went off and the doctor came in and I had to sit, sit and watch them give my child CPR. And normally that doesn't happen because normally we take the parent out. But because I was in the room at the time and because by that time the staff had came to know me and I think they realised I had probably quite a calm composure about things, I had to watch that. But it's a, it's a vision that will never, ever leave me. So then she ended up blue-lighted to Edinburgh with members of staff from the hospital and was in intensive care for a few days, well, probably a few weeks before she stabilised, before they could do the tracheostomy. And then they did the tracheostomy. That was about the beginning of April. A few weeks later, we got a call during the night, one night, to say that they were really sorry, but she had gone into cardiac arrest and they weren't sure. They'd managed to bring her back after a few minutes, but they thought she'd be badly brain damaged and they didn't know what other damage was done. At which point I said, do you want me to come over? <laughs> Came off the phone and realised that actually, of course I would need to go over. But I think by that point, sadly, we were living a life which was so intense that we'd lost the concept of reality. Mm. So we went over to see her then. And then gradually, again, in intensive care, on a ventilator, all the rest of it. But eventually, time over, you know, weeks after weeks, she started to improve. And it proved that the tracheostomy was was a good thing for her but she was still on a ventilator and they couldn't get her off the ventilator so that was the April 
and that actually went on right until the June and at the end of June, beginning of July, they started to think about maybe we could get her home. So she actually came home from intensive care to our house. So we didn't go into a ward. So all of a sudden we had a child, well, who'd gone from intensive care to high dependency and then straight home. So it was a, it was an eye-opener and shocked our system, to say the least, yeah. Mm-hmm. So six months from giving birth yeah. to getting home. Yeah. And before we had this, you know, sometimes I do a behind-the-scenes before we started the interview, you are talking about having a celebration of a year of Rebecca's life. Was that a date you never thought you'd see? Yeah. Yeah, we never thought, until we got to that point, we really didn't think, because you had so many different issues to face. It just seemed to be one thing after another. So although we knew her life was in the Lord's hands, we were fully expecting that at some point something might just, just take her away. And as say, life was was intense but in it all um, we did see the Lord's hand at work you know, one of the other situations that happened totally unexpected was that I lost my job I was made redundant out of the blue really wasn't expected but we'd lost a big client and 10 people were made redundant uh, and I was one of them so of course you think that your world has descended there we knew it was a possibility and I'd said to Sarah you know given how intense life was and Rebecca was in hospital I'd wondered whether you know if it was voluntary redundancy would I take it and I was a relatively young person at the time you wouldn't normally think of doing that but circumstances were different the Lord knew probably that if we pushed come to show I wouldn't have volunteered so he took it out of my hands and it was compulsory uh, and that was it so of course there was a bit of time before I actually f- finished work and I'm waiting to get a date for being able to leave work and meanwhile, uh, we are waiting on a date for Rebecca to get released from hospital to get her back home. First time we'd have her back home. So I got my date and Sarah got her date and the dates were exactly the same. So the Lord brought circumstances together where I finished work in Edinburgh, drove round to the sick kids hospital, picked up Sarah, picked up Rebecca and, and came home clearly off the Lord and that was us for a year and a half before I went back into employment and for that period of time it was just shuttling back and forward but we obviously had a four year old Hannah was just, so we're trying to keep things as normal for her which was very difficult but Sarah and I were shuttling back and forward between hospital and then juggling from Hannah so yeah life was pretty intense and at that point care was very intense for Rebecca and it became very apparent that I could never have done that care on my own because we didn't get any uh, medical support. It became very apparent that that was the reason why Laird had lost his job because he managed to help me. So every night, every week, every day, I was up all the time. So Laird managed to help me out and take shifts and we did it in shifts until she went back into hospital, but that's another story. <laughs> So obviously I have a list of kind of dates and events from you two and I've also written down some questions and pointers for myself to ask. And one of them you've kind of, you've touched on a little bit in that how did Hannah cope being the big sister and a lot of the attention she would have become accustomed to was naturally diverted to her younger sister. 
Did you cope well? Were you able to, to address that? So it was a very difficult thing to balance because she'd been an only child and, you know, so much attention and all of a sudden life had changed, not just having a new sister, but it changed dramatically. So what we did, we're not sure if it was the right thing or the wrong thing at the time, but we decided we would include her in everything that we did. So we took Hannah to hospital with us. So all our visits, she came to hospital. We did have family and friends help out, but we didn't every day have her at family and friends. Managed to work out her nursery times round visits. So I would go and visit Rebecca when Hannah was at nursery and then I could spend the rest of the time with Hannah. Led would go in to see Rebecca after work so that he was seeing Rebecca. It was a balancing act, but she seemed to cope really, really well. She was really quite a confident little girl. She was quite bubbly and outgoing. And amazingly, later on in life, she's gone on to be a doctor and that's been her starting point was with her sister in the hospital visits and that's obviously what set her up here but I say it probably was more challenging for her than we realised at the time but she coped we think thought she'd coped really well didn't we that's because she grew up every day assuming she had to go to the hospital <laughs> yeah. she's, it's just a natural she's, thing she just gets in the morning and goes to the hospital now she gets paid for it <laughs> She was always very curious, you know, we, we would think, well, for a child, you know, you really want to protect her in a sense and so on, but Hannah would be looking at other children in other beds and asking what was wrong with them and what was their name and what was that bag that was on that stand here. So she was very inquisitive, but as I say, we were aware that it wasn't normal for a child to be in for so long. So we did try and do other things. when If one of us was in... From time to time, we'd take her out to the park and to just try and, try and keep things as normal as possible, but clearly it wasn't. But I would say she coped very well in the circumstances just as a, a young girl. Yeah. Believe it or not, there are other things we're going to come to, mm-hmm. but as you go going through the redundancy and bringing Rebecca home and, and these sort of things, how did you feel the Lord was speaking into your life? What were the things that, that kept you going? Were there any tangible events that really made you feel as though the Lord was with you? I think we were time and time again reminded that we needed to rely entirely upon him. One of the times was when Rebecca took particularly ill, so this was a little bit later on. She'd been in the local hospital. Um, She hadn't been doing particularly well. All of a sudden, we asked them to uh, discuss with the consultant in Edinburgh her situation. That had triggered some investigations And within a relatively short period of time, they suddenly announced that they were again going to blue light her across. And one of her lungs had collapsed, the other one was collapsing. And probably in the whole piece, that was the sickest that Rebecca was. She got across to Edinburgh. She was on a big, booming ventilator, kind of eerie-sounding machine. And I remember saying to Sarah, as the two consultants walked up the ward, it's not good news. You could just tell by their body language. And they came in... Um, I'll never forget what they said. They said, we have done everything that we possibly can. We can do no more. The machine was working at its capacity. There was no room for manoeuvre at all. She was very, very ill. About an hour later, one of the consultants came back in and he's shaking his head. And I thought this was bad news. And I asked him, uh, and he said, I'm slightly surprised. He said, I'm actually able to turn the machine slightly down. He says, things have improved marginally. And another hour later, another movement, um, and so on. And I reflected on those words, you know, we, we cannot do anything more. And it was just the Lord just had stepped in at that point. And that was a tangible, one of the many tangible evidences where we were trusting in him uh, and he was confirming that by intervening uh, and bringing her through that when the medics were 
openly admitting that they couldn't do anything more. They did a fantastic job. You have the highest, utmost regard for for these medics who worked so tirelessly on her behalf. But there came times when they were at the end of their ability and then the Lord was able to, to bring her through. And you reminded that with man, these things are impossible. Yeah, with God, all things are possible. Yeah. yeah. So at that point, it's quite amazing as well. We talk about how things change and why. But at that point, they decided to put a gastrostomy feeding tube into Rebecca. So she hadn't put on any weight and she'd been really poorly. So she was on a life support machine for four months. But by the time she came home, she was on a ventilator at night and she was tube fed with a gastrostomy feed. And she actually started to improve from that point. So, okay, we'd had a really f- four months that were really intense and difficult, but actually afterwards she was actually better than she'd been previously. So we had a lot to be thankful for. Yeah. And since that first year and a half, two years, have things continued to improve health-wise or have there been further issues? So generally they've improved. I see she was on a ventilator probably at night for about five years. At that point, we managed to get some help, medical care at night, which eased the burden for me. It was only once or twice a week, but it was enough just to, to help. And then probably by the time the age she was about really seven, she came off the ventilator. We were told by the medics that she would never walk, she'd never sit, she'd never talk. And amazingly, she's done all these things. And we have to say that, that to God we give the glory because it's not anything to do with us. The Lord has been really gracious to us and allowed that to happen. And she really is one of our biggest blessings, not just to us, but to other people. And in some ways, it's a privilege that the Lord's allowed us to have a child like that. It's brought difficulties and it's brought, there's been lots of difficulties, even with education and, you know, there's challenges continually. But again, the Lord intervenes and he's been really good to us. And we trust him fully because even for our future, it's unknown. And we don't know at this point what the future holds for us but we just have to place her in the Lord's hands. She really is our miracle. You know, yes, she is. She's our it's miracle. A miracle. She's here. The Lord has clearly brought her through um, and we've, we're so grateful for that. Her health is very stable overall for, for many, many years now. Um, you know, After that intense, intense and difficult period of time when she was just battling day by day to survive. But I think what the medics would say is that during that period of time, when normal children are learning to talk and learning to eat and learning to walk. The way we're made up is if you miss that window of opportunity because you're fighting for life, you don't really go back to it. So you then, at some later point, to try and learn all of these things. Okay, um, which is not as easy to do that. Easy. But she was a fighter, and uh, so she would then go and walk and, and ride bikes and things that they just thought would never happen and communicate you know so it's we're, we're very blessed to have her so she started walking when she was four which we by that stage we didn't think she was going to walk i had gone for a consultation with the consultant when she was about two and he said look your child's never sat if a child doesn't sit by the time they're two they're not going to walk it's just not going to happen but she says things just happened later for her she has got developmental issues and she has got learning needs, but she copes really, really well. And she's, she's so much more than we ever thought we would ever have. We never thought she'd survive. So we've got this child who does so many things and we love her to bits, don't we? She's brilliant. You have to say that she's sat in the room with us. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure I'm, it's true I'm anyway. for her laughing at that point. <laughs> yeah. And we've tried to just bring her up as best we can and as normal as we can. I think one of the challenges maybe 
for children like Rebecca is there's a d- danger that you you have a cocoon them. It's very obvious, understandable. You cocoon them sort of rattling cotton wool. I try not to do that. So there's various things that she's done that just you would never have thought was possible. But as I say, Rebecca's up for a challenge. <laughs> she's always keen to do things. You're learning to ride a bike. So is that really going to happen? Well, it did happen, you know. Uh, we took her skiing. She, she, she was skiing and... and she cycled um, over the San Francisco Bridge. Really? On her own, yes. Which we never thought would ever happen. Good. It was a challenge, but she did it. Yeah, so she's done lots of things that we never thought she would. I'm very envious, Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> This is a very personal question, so it's the sort of question that I can ask now and it might yeah. you might want to cut out, but at any point throughout the whole experience, was there ever a, a sense that there was any anger that you were, you were the ones going through this experience or, or you had it hard when other families don't seem to have the issues you have? So probably later on when we encounter other problems, there was times we thought, why? But probably at that stage in life, we didn't think like that. But it was only later when we encountered other problems that we started to wonder what have we done wrong? It's God punishing us. Have we done something wrong? Um, Grateful for the fact that probably that hasn't happened. Remember hearing the fact that the man who married us was John Grant, and I heard John Grant speaking once and saying that difficulties and trials will do one of two things: it will either make you bitter or it will make you better. And that was John's sort of pity style. So I think we were very conscious that it could very quickly make us bitter. So I think it was something that we probably both individually and together were praying that that didn't happen. And I think the Lord did answer that prayer. So I think throughout it, there wasn't, we were preserved from that, there wasn't our bitterness. In fact, one of the interesting things, just to sort of test me, and you just do it quietly, but there was a girl in the next bed to Rebecca and she was waiting on a heart transplant and it wasn't happening and her mother was very very bitter Mm. and a nurse had said to Sarah we've noticed that you're able to deal with this situation with your very sick child you don't seem to be bitter but this woman is really struggling I wonder if you could speak to her so Sarah was able to go and speak to this woman and in her own way testify about the Lord Jesus and how that's the only reason why we're able to cope at all. Um, so I think it was good on a few occasions just for you know, nurses and others to, to note that it wasn't our strength, but it was the Lord's help that was getting us through. Sounds like there was a real consciousness that you have to be almost proactive in trusting the Lord. You, know, you might not always see the reasons behind it. I know you've said you don't always know the answers to the questions you have, but to acknowledge the Lord is good and the Lord is faithful and he's not doing these things in a spiteful sense, but we may be able to touch on those things in a few minutes' time. So I've seen that I, um, I think Amy Carmichael wrote a poem called In Acceptance Lies Peace. And it's a saying that I would say I've put over the whole of my life journey from that, you know, the start of the difficulties and I realise that you have to just accept the Lord has given you this and you will get a peace from it. Now, some people might find that a bit, you know, really not what, what, what they want to, to believe in, but that for me, I've just, I do get peace from knowing the Lord's fully in control and I just have to fully trust him and rely on him. Do you think there's a, an unfair expectation that on an individual basis, Christians, or whether as a married couple... That there's an expectation that life will be smooth and that we won't encounter any suffering or any problems. 
I think that's a thing that I think a lot of people think that once you're a Christian that life is a bed of roses and everything's going to be fine and that yeah. in a sense you, you know you're, heaven's heaven's going to be your ultimate home and that's it you know like the life journey to be there will be lovely but I think in the difficult moments it actually strengthens your faith and it strengthens your trust in the Lord and I think there is a purpose for your pain and the Lord's allowed it to happen to you for certain reasons and it's for your good but it's more for his glory and I think that's why a lot of these things happen. It's usually strength, it strengthens your faith. It makes your faith more real, as I mentioned earlier. Um, you're more reliant on the Lord. You see his hand at work in a very specific way, in a, almost on a daily basis. Nothing special about us, but you're just, it's a privilege then to be in a situation where you can actually see the Lord's hand, which perhaps we couldn't have seen in, in other circumstances. So recognising that and appreciating that and and giving thanks for that is something that we've, we've tried to do. I'm sure there's loads of lessons that we haven't learned throughout it, but you just try and pick up some of the lessons that clearly you've been taught through the, the challenges. Let's move on to another issue. <laughs> on, on the list that you provided, you mentioned that Leonard, your brother, tragically would pass away in 2007. So perhaps you could explain the, the situation behind that. Yeah, there was just the two of us. Um, so Brian was about four and a half years younger than me. We were like any brothers. You know, we had our, our moments, but by and large, we got on so well. He was a very different individual to me, but we, we grew on well. He married, he had a, a, a little child, Lewis, uh, and everything seemed to be going fine. And then I got a call one night to say that he had left his wife didn't seem to be any lead up to it at all and at that point it's one of those moments in life and sort of bottom falls out of your world and he, he turned his back on not only his family but for a while on his Christian life as well he was still clear that he was a Christian but he had just decided that it wasn't the life for him for a while um, which was very sad and sad for us all sad for my mum and dad and it was during that period of time He'd, he'd gone away from from his wife and then after a period he came back and stayed with mum and dad actually for a bit his life's a bit of a mess he had health issues again another call I always remember was a call from my mum one night late on almost incoherent but she'd been called by Spanish police to say that her brother had been found dead in a hotel room he'd gone over for a wedding in Spain and he was found dead he was 37 years of age a young man and uh, that was very, very difficult for, for lots and lots of reasons. The fact that he hadn't been going on as a strong Christian was a real difficult to deal with, particularly for my mum and dad. Lots of questions uh, around it. Yeah, that, that was really another big test for faith. Probably had almost more questions then than we had in relation to Rebecca being born. And again, the Lord was very gracious and helped. We still have a very good relationship with his wife, with Hazel, and with his son, Lewis, and Hazel's remarried, and she's got a little boy called Sam growing up, and we see them quite a bit as well. So uh, we try and we keep in touch as best we can. But uh, yeah, you know, uh, an event that just changed so many. And uh, was, you know, normally you wouldn't expect that to happen. It just seems so unnatural. But it was uh, another traumatic time. And then finally, well, I say finally, in, in June of 2008, another big blow for you, Sarah. 
perhaps you take it so kind of how it manifested itself so in 2008 June unfortunately I got diagnosed with bowel cancer so previously to that I had been feeling very unwell very tired a few other symptoms on the way but I just put it down to caring for Rebecca because life was really intense and we'd obviously had the, the trauma of everything that happened with Brian just a year before so I just thought it was life and catching up with me and then I got to the point I thought maybe I'm depressed maybe there's something else going on so I decided to go to the doctor to have tests done and unfortunately, initially, when they did the test, because of my age, they decided that it couldn't possibly be anything sinister and they just didn't do anything about it. So I had gone back about another four or five months later and was set for a colonoscopy to be told, unfortunately, it's malignant. So that was a big shock to me because I'm a very positive person and when the GP came to tell me the results she was trying to be positive as well. So I had said to her, oh, I said, I'm so glad it's nothing sinister. And she said, I'm really sorry, Sarah. She says, it's actually malignant. And all of a sudden it was like a whirlwind. Oh, right, okay, what am I going to do? How do we deal with this? So by that point, Laird had had a job. They'd now got a new job, but unfortunately it was down south. Phone Laird to tell him, but he couldn't be with me. My parents were visiting a friend who was really ill. They couldn't be with me. So eventually I phoned a really good friend of mine, Audrey, and she came with me and sat with me while I tried to process it all. And then from there, people just kept coming and going, you know, what's going on, all the rest of it. I had to tell Hannah because I realised all of a sudden Hannah's going to be very aware that people are in and out of the house and that people are a bit upset. So I took Hannah through to the bedroom and I said, look, she was eight at the time. Would she not be ten? Ten, she'd be ten, was she ten? She was ten at the time. I'll, I'll keep you right, you're right, you're right, you're right. So just because I've got the figures yeah, yeah. in front of us. I totally mocked her up, so she was ten at the time. So I took her through to the bedroom and I said to her, look, you've probably heard about cancer before. I said, we'll just let you know that mum has cancer. So the first thing she said to me is, are you going to die? And I had just had to say, well, I hope not. And then the next question she said is, can we still go on holidays to Disneyland? <laughs> to which I had to say, sorry, I don't think so. So I think she probably held that more against me. So from, <laughs> from there, life became just an event of running back before the hospital, had surgery, starting chemo, just became very intense. Again, the amazing thing, timing-wise, I remember saying to my consultant when he told me, he said, I'm so, so sorry. He said, I'm sorry that, you know, this has happened. And I said, well, it couldn't have happened at a better time. And he says, well, it'd be better if it hadn't happened at all. But the timing was that Rebecca had started school, which meant that she was cared for all day. Whereas if before that, I would have been having to care for her. So that actually took a lot of pressure off me. Um, so that worked out really well. You describe yourself as a positive person. Now, what you've just said is... The cancer came at the right time, which is a, a positive spin on things. Yeah. But also, again, before we did the interview, you had said that you had reached C3 and yeah. that it hadn't got to the point where it was terminal and, and therefore you had lots to be thankful yeah. for. And I thought, well, that's an interesting use of the word thankful. Yeah. You know, that the cancer hadn't progressed too far. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. So I think, um, I, I mean, the next stage would have been terminal, so that would have been very difficult and... In some ways, I'm just thankful it was caught at the stage it was caught because um, we're now 14 years on and, OK, I still go for tests and things, but amazingly, everything's been fine. I was young. I was only 35 at the time, which is quite young to have a cancer like that. But, no, everything went, went, went as well as could be expected, I suppose, under the circumstances. I mean, it was a dark and difficult time. Again, because we knew knowing the Lord before had brought us through, I knew that that same faith and the same trust I'd put in him would get me through and friends who weren't Christians saw that as well they realised that actually you had a strong faith and that the faith would bring you through and it's only because of the Lord that we're here today 
And another one of my favourite verses, another one, is um, his messages are new every day. And that's it, the Lord's messages are continually new every day. So that's another favourite verse of mine. Yeah. I think I found right at the start of that period, perhaps one of the most difficult periods, um, even more difficult than when Rebecca was very ill. Because I remember I had been out travelling from London to Norwich when I got the call from Sarah so she'd had the examination and they didn't confirm then they, they said that there was a, a growth um, Sarah says by their body language I think it's malignant she says they wouldn't confirm it then they were having, going to have to obviously go and test it and I think probably from that moment until we got the confirmation of what stage it was at and what treatment was possible I found that very very difficult because my mind was a way down rabbit holes, uh, the hot ifs, you know, that was where I was at, and I found that week or fortnight, however long it was, was particularly challenging. And I think maybe others in similar situations are likewise. Until you, until we got the confirmation that it is malignant, which we kind of suspected anyway, but it wasn't the f- category four, it was category three, and it was a plan and the surgeon seemed reasonably confident that he could operate and remove the cancer that, crucially, it hadn't spread into other organs, and he was right in that. So once that, although that still was very difficult, it was a you know, big, big operation and um, you know, difficult period of time with chemotherapy, remember the very first time that Sarah got chemotherapy, and she came back to uh, the house and she was sitting uh, in her lounge. My mum and dad were in, and Sarah's talking, and then Sarah starts to slur her words. And she said, I don't feel very well. And she went to stand up. She said, I can't stand up. Put on power my legs. And my dad and myself, we then physically helped Sarah to get up the stairs and into her bed. Um, and what I didn't realise was that chemotherapy pushes people very close to stroke-inducing and it obviously bumped up against that and it, it, the symptoms were uh, effectively very similar to taking a stroke and then, then to dial back the the strength of, of the treatment. But that was very, very scary. You, know, you can understand that. So lots of difficult days ahead, but i say probably that first week and a half was maybe the most difficult because I didn't know where it was going to end. You know, so very challenging. Did you find that as you past each hurdle and every experience you had did it strengthen your faith to cope or was it almost going back to the start each time I think probably personally for me it strengthened my faith to cope I think because I had known that the Lord had brought me through situations before I really fully believed he would bring me through them again the verses I read and you know songs I heard things like that they all helped me I have to say, during the period of time of the chemotherapy, it was probably quite a dark and difficult time for me because I was so poorly. But it was a time when all of a sudden I could actually just rest and be myself and um, I didn't have the intense care for Rebecca. I um, often think about the verse, you know, come you apart and rest a while. And sometimes I wonder if it was the Lord just allowing me to have a bit of a break after the difficult time that I'd had caring for Rebecca. But I would say for me, it probably would have strengthened my faith at that moment. And I mean, my faith has probably been up and down and there's moments that I don't walk closely with the Lord but the reminder of how faithful he's been always draws me back um, every time, yeah. I think you're able to see 
something of the Lord in it. Maybe not always immediately. Um, even way back, I remember when I was out of work, when then I became got to the point where I was looking for for work after probably a year of being out of work. Things seemed to improve with Rebecca, and a job advert was brought before me. And probably if I had been writing the job specification, I couldn't really it closer to my background and so on. Uh, it was in the town. It was with an American company in the town. It was local, accessible. All of that seemed fine. And uh, although I wasn't presumptuous in any way of thinking that I would get the job, I at least thought I would get an interview. You know, I thought, well, given what I've done and given the job they're looking for, um, I was thinking of my situation. If I had saw somebody that had that experience and I was looking for somebody, you'd at least have a look at them. So I had assumed that I would. And I'll never forget the day when the letter came in to say, thanks for your application, but we're taking it no further. And it just was like a sledgehammer. And yet within literally a minute, I was acutely aware that this was of the Lord, that it was a door was closed very, very deliberately, not even getting an interview. And it was as if the Lord was saying, well, you had your plans for getting back into employment, but I've got other plans for you. And I remember coming to that realisation very quickly and it helped because you were then able to, given what had happened before, you were then able to be thankful for that and to be grateful for that. Confused, yes. Frustrated, yes. But still in some small way able to trust the Lord and then see his hand at work further on in, in opening doors. Yeah. I'll get into my last couple of questions, you'd be pleased to know. <laughs> so the, the third last question... Throughout the different experiences, how were you helped by other Christians? How would you suggest that Christians act if they've got friends and family in the same situation? So I, I think um, I think that it was really important to me is practical help as well as spiritual help. So I've had lots of friends who have prayed with me, um, sat with me, or you know sent me like verses and things like that. But I have one Christian friend, an older lady, who helped me practically. So she came along and she cooked meals for us and she took ironing away, something yeah. that I never thought I would ever allow somebody to do for me. And it made me realise that actually there's moments in life where you have to let people help you. And that's a very, it was a very difficult thing for me to do because you become very self-sufficient and you don't want other people to help you. And all of a sudden you realise that actually you can't do this on your own and you need other people to be there for you, to pray for you as well as practically helping you. Prayers are an amazing thing. I mean, the power of prayer is why Rebecca's here today, is why I'm here today. And the comfort and peace that prayer brings and knowing that people are praying for you is really humbling. I mean, I've met people who I had never met before and when I introduce myself, they'll say, well, I've prayed for you. And that's just such a humbling experience to think that people you don't even know are going to pray for you. We've got an American couple that we're very friendly with, uh, the Dillmans, and... One of the times he was coming around to visit and it just coincided with us getting a call to say, Rebecca's got worse, you need to get to the hospital. So we relayed this to, to Don and he immediately said, I'll email, I'll contact my friends, my relatives in America and they'll pray for Rebecca. I remember us driving to the hospital thinking we'll never meet these people until we get to heaven. 
And yet it was so humbling and so delightful just to think, here were Christians, now they're saying the Atlantic, and they were praying for our little girl. And I think the value of Christian fellowship and friendship was so real. You know, we'd had loads of Christian friends as we grew up, you know, and we appreciated them. But I think the depth of appreciation just increased, you know, throughout issues. Those, those people really stood up, were really able to help in an amazing way, and we are so indebted to them. Some that we were maybe surprised, in a sense, because we were thinking of our own situation. Maybe I had been quite reluctant to get involved in a situation like that for a variety of reasons, uh, and totally understandable, and yet there was people who really you know, stood up and helped in a huge way and I say we're, we're very indebted to them and I think the other thing then that Sarah, Sarah's very good at this far better than I am but being able to help others you know in similar situations um, being able to empathise being able to uh, to strong side and just relate experiences invaluable really to be able to do that in a, in a little way and as they say has done it repeatedly to lots of people so I think that that has been a, a huge blessing just being able to um, share that with others The nice thing is there's, there's not a problem on earth you guys haven't experienced yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we, so there's not a Christian around that you can help We've been there done that yeah. Yeah. And then a, a question that kind of touches on what we've just really spoken about if there are Christians who are going through similar experiences, what advice would you have for them as far as strengthening their faith, relying on the Lord? How would you advise them? I think the big thing is you have to pray about it. And the peace, the peace that passes all understanding, I mean, that is the peace that you will get. And it's a peace you can't describe, but it's because you know that the Lord is undertaken for you. So I think the big thing is praying. It's one of the big things I would say that really helps with you. And also let other Christians help you. You know, if there's other Christians that you feel that you can trust and speak to, approach them. It's not everybody you can approach. It's not everybody that will be there for you. It's not everybody the right person. But do approach other people for support and help. Don't try and do it on your own because people do want to help. Um, and the Lord will provide the right person for you to help you at the right time. And I think certainly in our experience was that um, it was only in hindsight when you look back you, you, you can receive with more clarity the help that you've got you know that the Lord has been so gracious throughout you know I think it, if it had been as you naturally just think that we're going to submerge we're going to succumb to this weight of difficulties and pressures and yet no time really did we feel that simply because the Lord was helping us throughout um and it was only when we look back, so you, you mentioned earlier about the Thanksgiving service we had when Rebecca was one, um, just to give God thanks, obviously, for how he dealt with Rebecca, and also to use it as a witness to other people, you know, the great God that we've got. And in compiling uh, some pictures for that occasion, uh, it was really only then, as we took a step back, we saw these pictures, you know, from day one right the way through, that we sat and said, how did we cope? <laughs> and the answer is, we didn't really cope. The Lord helped us to cope. Uh, and that became very apparent on hindsight. Um, so now the Lord does graciously help, and I'm sure other people who have been through difficulties will come to the same conclusion. Um, and just relying on him, you know, he is a great God. And 
we've proved that in in some way loads of Christians prove that on a daily basis. I think one of the the things about Rebecca we were grateful that her prognosis seemed like she had lots of difficulties. We were in a ward in Edinburgh in the sick kids hospital. Loads of children in that ward, their prognosis was far worse than Rebecca's. You know, because a lot of them had terminal cancer, you know, their life expectancy was very short. We were grateful for the fact that although Rebecca had had lots of difficulties, things had settled down. You know, and we got home and uh, and, and so and so being thankful um, is, is, is something that maybe doesn't always come naturally but you know, Paul writing to the Thessalonians he says never think of thanks and and maybe in a little way we've found out that even in some of the difficulties that were, were uh, in, in our lives uh, it could have been a lot worse and we saw other people for which that was true so you're still able to, to give God thanks for how he's helped us. So we'll come on to the last question, which I always ask, which is, are there any Bible verses that have been a particular help or challenge at any particular point? Now, you've quoted huge uh, numbers of verses. So the way I think we should do it is if Leonard, you go first, and then we'll go and have a coffee in another room. <laughs> and we'll, just, we'll leave the mics running and Sarah can just Sarah can reel off her many verses. So one of my favourites is he can do exceedingly abundantly above what you ask or think. Um, and I think for me, like any problem that comes along, you realise actually, no matter what we even ask or think, God can do far above that. And so many times in our lives, there's things we've asked the Lord for, but he's actually done well more than what we thought. And we've got so much to be thankful for. Remember I said I wanted chapter and verse for all these? I know, but we don't ask me chapter and verse. I'll let you off. I'll let you off. I, really, I told you I couldn't quote chapter and verse. That could be the quiz for the listeners. <laughs> and also, I can't quote verses to the, to the T. <laughs> I suppose linked link to that, because I think, um, uh, and I've, I've used it in, in ministry, but I think... It, it probably came out of all of these events. You know, there's a lot of expression, you know, he is able. So Sarah's quoted that he's able to do exceedingly. You know, um, the Hebrew writer talks about he's able to save to the uttermost. I suppose that's where it starts, really. Um, another version of Hebrews, he's able to succor. He's able to provide help to them at a, an appropriate time. And I think we found that out as well, that just when we needed help, He's able to provide it. So these are sort of divine ability. You know, we're conscious of our inability. Absolutely, I think any Christian would be. But you then are amazed, staggered that he's able, you know. Um, so yeah, the, the Bible has a lot to say about he's able to keep that which I committed unto him against that day. You know, things that are just uh, unassailable. Um, so no... Divine ability is an amazing thing, and through all of our experiences, I think we become very, very conscious of that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I've got a, mo- a vivid memory of Rebecca coming home and sitting on the toilet floor, crying my eyes out because I didn't actually have the energy to keep going with her care. It was just like full on. And that was the verse that came to me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I can't do it in my own strength, but I can do it in his strength. And just picking up and see his ears then. So I think one of the See now it's going to be a competition. <laughs> no, no, no. Um I think the amazing thing about about that verse, you know, it'd be wonderful if you got the help that you needed on the first of January, you know, for the year. But that's not how the Lord operates, you know. 
because um, then you'd have to work out how you're going to divvy it up throughout the year. But when Paul's writing in chapter 4 of Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who daily pours his strength into me. I understand his idea. And I think that's very precious. That means every day you're given help for the day. And I think we've proved that. It wasn't just at the beginning of a month and you had to sort of figure your way through every single day, commit the day to God, commit the situation to God, and he gives you the strength and it's only from him. Um, so no, that I think is a hugely precious verse, clearly for Sarah and, and for me. <laughs> and then I dropped in the book and the chapter, you see, he's yeah, obviously yes, more spiritual. Yes, definitely. He was giving <laughs> me a ministry oh. according to it as well. <laughs> and I just like the fact we had a quick game of Bible verse tennis, just going to want to do it. He's going to win, Leonard's won. Well, thank you both very much for your very honest testimony. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming down. It's nice to meet you as well. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for listening to Testimony Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review and sharing it on social media with friends. Thank you.